church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McLean. Buenos dias, Skatal. Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you again this week as we continue our study in A Father Who Keeps His Promises by Dr. Scott Hahn. It's been, I don't know, several weeks now since we've uh, we've gone down our study in salvation history, and I was kind of anxious to get back to it. I was very tempted to, uh, to skip again this week and talk once more about Yom Kippur, because uh, I came across a resource this last week. Actually, I would already heard it, but I was inspired by it again. And so I'll, I'll touch briefly on that as a recap, tying us into uh, the study on Yom Kippur and the fulfillment found in Jesus Christ, and then getting us right into our study on Jacob and him meeting his match. Well, that intro song was Your Will Be Done by Chris Mooglia, and you can find a link to Chris's website on my site at www.catholichack.com. And you're going to see that that uh, song, Your Will Be Done, is um, is pretty good uh, to lead us into this discussion on Jacob, because he comes across that Your Will Be Done several times in his narrative in Scripture. But before we get too far along, let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory and power be to you, Almighty God, forever and ever. We come before you again to praise your holy name, to learn. And we ask that you send forth your Holy Spirit upon us to give us guidance, to guide us in this salvation history, that we might soak it up and that we might proclaim your glory in our lives everywhere we go through your word and through your church that you have given to us. And we praise you for that. We, we ask to surrender our own wills to God 
We pray that your will be done in our lives. Not our will, but your will be done. We pray especially this week for the Pope and his mission to the UK. We ask that you give him extra graces, that he can endure and strength the, the animosity and the sheer hatred that is being hurled against him from all corners of this world, that he can endure that from those who know not what they do, including ourselves. And so we ask uh, for special graces on him this week. We also pray for Father Frank, Frank Provone, rather, from Priest for Life on his trip home and for his ministry. May you grant him extra graces this week. And we ask Our Lady to intercede for all of us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we have a lot of material to get into, so if I sound rushed, as always, I, I tend to always sound rushed. That's because I'm trying to cover so much and just jam it into a half-hour show. It becomes very difficult at times. But Last week, we talked about Yom Kippur and how it was a prototype to what would be fulfilled in Christ Jesus himself. And that was an awesome discussion. I truly enjoyed doing even the research on that, and I'm actually still doing some research for it, and it's just wonderful. Well, there's a, a talk given by Dr. John Bergsma. He is a biblical scholar, a professor at Steubenville University in Ohio, and he gave a talk, a series of talks on the Johannian tradition Okay, the Gospel of John, basically, but not just the Gospel, his writings, the Book of Revelation and, and others. And in his uh, talk, which I'll link to at catholichack.com, he shows the specific link between the high priest in Yom Kippur, the liturgical practice of the high priest at Yom Kippur, and how it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And specifically, he talks about um, the high priestly prayer found in St. John's Gospel, chapter 17, of our Lord. Okay, and the in the structure in which he prays, it mirrors. It is a direct parallel to that prayer that we find of the high priest of Yom Kippur during the Second Temple period, because the high priest, when he offered the bull, the sacrifice for himself, he had to pray for himself. He prayed for his house. He prayed for his brother priests, and then ultimately he would offer a goat and offer that for the people, and then he would pray for all the people. And then he would go in and out of the Holy of Holies, sprinkling and purifying the inner sanctuary, the curtain and the altar. And then he would come out and before all the people who were gathered there at the temple, he would proclaim the name of God. This was the one time that you could proclaim the name of God. And this was, this was it. This was when the Tetragrammaton was proclaimed and he did it over the people of God. And just like our Lord in John 17 prays that same structure, he too prays about how he manifested the name of the Father to the people. And so uh, John, Dr. John Bergsma shows this link, this parallel, linking Yom Kippur, the high priest, to our Lord and its perfection. It is an awesome lecture. I highly recommend you check it out. And again, you can find a link to that at catholichack.com. Well, now let's get into our study of A Father Who Keeps His Promises by Dr. Scott on. We're still in chapter six. We're still talking about Jacob. And uh, previously, on the last episode of Behold the Man, A Father Who Keeps His Promises, we saw how Jacob surplanted the birthright of his elder brother Esau. How Esau then plotted to kill Jacob. 
And Rebecca, his mother, overheard this and she got nervous. And so she asked Isaac to send Jacob back to Laban up in Haran, where her brother Laban lived, to find for himself a wife because they didn't want him to marry a Canaanite woman. You know, Esau, he had taken two wives who were not uh, of their of their lineage, who were not of their family, you know, and that bothered Rebekah and Isaac. And, and so Jacob was sent off to avoid being killed by Esau and to find himself a bride. And so he goes on his journey. And then we, we see how he walked till dark, and then he finds a place to rest upon a mountain where he rests his head on a rock. And this rock becomes a pillow, and there he has a vision of angels descending uh, and ascending from heaven on this ladder that goes down to this rock. And I want you to note there that these angels, they had no wings. They were wingless angels. They needed a ladder to make this ascending and descending. Um, it's very interesting, but in artwork, the winged angels didn't come till, till later, actually. Well, he declares on that spot, Jacob does, that this is Bethel, this is the house of God. And Jacob sets the stone up and pours oil on it, consecrates it, and says that if God will deliver him back to his country safely, then he will trust him. He will trust in him and he will give him a tenth of everything. Notice the the if-then statement. If God delivers me, then I will trust in him and give a tenth to him, you know, of everything. Well, golly gee whiz, Jacob, that's a, that's a whole big stretch of faith you got there, buddy. I mean, that's the get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, there's nothing to lose here. Well, if God doesn't come through, then he has nothing to lose. But if God does come through, and currently he has nothing at all in possession, really, then a tenth of nothing is still nothing. So he's got nothing to lose in this deal. You know, but where is this, this complete surrender of faith that we saw in his forefather Abraham, who steps out in faith and goes to a distant land? Okay, where is that faith? You know, it's surely not the not my will, but thy will be done faith of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that we'll see in the Gospels. So Jacob, I think, still has a long way to go in his faith walk with our Lord in this salvation history moment. We're going to see some of that development as we go along. Now, typologically, this stone is very important. It, this is the primordial stone. This is the mountain. You know, for instance, if we look through salvation history, the mountain that the Garden of Eden was placed on, this was where the waters receded and exposed the rock, and God placed the man in the garden on top of a mountain. Well, that's that primordial stone there. And we also saw that same mountain, you know, image there where Noah, when he made it through the flood and his ark landed on a rock where the waters also receded and exposed the mountain. He comes off this mountain where God had placed him and he offers up a sacrifice and God reestablishes the covenant. This is the new creation. Noah becomes the new Adam. Okay, also on this primordial stone, this rock, this stone, again, we see the mountain where Abraham offered Isaac on. Uh, this is uh, this is the very mountain where our Lord would also be offered up on. And then, of course, we get to the stone of Jacob, where he sleeps on this stone. And soon we'll see the mountain where Moses, on this rock, this stone, will receive the law of God. And then, of course, there's Solomon, who builds the temple on the mountain. It's the same mountain where Isaac was offered up. And, and this is the where the Evan Shatia, the, the, the foundation, the stone of foundation exists, where the temple was built on top of. This is the same place where the Dome of the Rock is today. And of course, as we said, 
Our Lord is offered up on this very mountain, this very stone, right? But of course, also, Jesus will be the wise man who builds his house upon a rock. As we see in Matthew chapter 16, the St. Peter becomes the rock upon which he builds his church. Not St. Peter's church, not your church, not my church. It is Christ's church. It is his kahal. It is his ecclesia, his church that is built upon the foundation stone of St. Peter. Notice the the, the typology between uh, Solomon being the, the wise man and our Lord being the perfection of that. It is the prototype of Solomon that comes to its, its reality in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate wise man who builds his house upon the rock of St. Peter. Now, uh, moving on, Jesus is, of course, the fulfillment of this vision of Jacob, the angels ascending and descending upon this rock, as we read uh, of our Lord saying in St. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 50 and 51, quote, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you shall see greater things than these? And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, unquote. Okay, so that was last time on this show. Now, let's get into this week. Now, Jacob continues on his journey. We're, we're in Genesis chapter 29. Jacob comes to a well where three flocks are, of sheep are gathered, but notice that they're not drinking the water. Okay, the, the well has a stone on top of it, and it's, uh, it's covered. And so the, the flocks are starting to gather there, and there's three of them right there, and there's shepherds. And Jacob asks them, where are you from? And they reply that they're from Haran. And so this is good news for Jacob, because this is where his uncle Laban lives. And this is where he is to come, and this is where he is to find Laban's daughter and take one of them as his wife. And lo and behold, just then, here comes Rachel, the daughter of Laban, bringing the flocks of her father out to the well to be watered. Now, I've read some commentaries that suggest that the fact that Rachel is bringing the flock, it sort of suggests that this is an economic downturn for Laban. The times are tough that his flock shrank to the point where he allows or he has his daughter watching over them. And so that can be very important in the storyline of what we're going to see, because as Jacob encounters the family of Laban, times are tough economically, and we're going to see them get better, okay? And so, again, he, he sees Rachel coming, and, and she's there to, uh, to water the flock of her father's sheep, and it's around noon, as we read in verse 7 of chapter 29. Now, that's, that's critical. Uh, around noon, here comes a woman to the well. Okay, compare and contrast this to uh, St. John's Gospel, chapter 4, with the woman at the well, right? This is when a man, you know, again, this is when Jesus comes to a well in Samaria and talks with the woman at the well, and there's this exchange that makes his apostles all nervous. Why are they nervous? Because what happens when a man comes to a well at noon and finds a woman there and starts talking with her? marriage. Marriage happens, okay? And what did Jesus talk to her about? He talked to her about marriage. 
All right. I, I can't get into too much of that right now. I suggest you really compare and contrast this, this episode and John chapter four, and I could post some links where Dr. Bergsma also draws these parallels and comparisons, and it's phenomenal. But basically, the woman in John chapter four represents the 10 northern tribes of Israel that split off from the two southern tribes. When Rehoboam, the son of King Solomon, he, he levied these extra burdens, these taxes upon the people and they rebelled, and they split off from from, uh, Rehoboam, right? Okay, well, Jesus is there to ingather the tribes. He's there to bring them back. He's there to be their spouse again, okay? And so she's representing the 10 northern tribes, and he's representing, of course, himself, the Messiah. And this is all marriage that's going on. It's it's phenomenal. And I'll, again, stop by catholichack.com and find some links for all of that. But again, Jesus is bringing back all the tribes of the people because the prophets showed that when the Messiah comes, all 10 tribes will be back together. Well, here's the kicker. Okay, the 10 northern tribes, they were decimated by the Assyrians. The Assyrians brought in these five foreign people with their five foreign gods, and they mixed the the people up, and they took some of the the, uh, 10 northern tribes out and repopulated them elsewhere, leaving only a remnant, and then bringing in these five foreign peoples. And so they mixed the blood. So how can you bring back 10 northern tribes when you have no idea where they are? I mean, through their mixed generations now, they're just spread so paper thin all over the world that, I mean, I could be a descendant of one of those tribes and I wouldn't know it. That's exactly what's going on. It would take God himself to fulfill this prophecy. And that's what he's doing. He's calling to mind her five husbands, her five Baals. Well, that's a a reference to the fact that those five peoples were brought in to mix and marry and, and spread thin the lineage of the 10 tribes. So Jesus is bringing the ingathering. He's incorporating not only the 10 northern tribes to the 10, uh, to the two southern tribes, but also bringing in the Gentiles too. And again, this is leading up to the wedding feast of the Lamb who marries all the people. And contrast that to Solomon, who's Solomon who tried to marry all the women of the people with 700 wives and 300 concubines. That too was a foreshadowing to what would truly be done truly and perfectly and correctly be done when the Messiah would be the one groom for all the people in the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now back to verse 8 of chapter 29 in the book of Genesis. The well was blocked by a stone, okay? And once all the flocks were gathered, then would the stone be removed and the flocks watered. Notice that. First, all the flocks had to be gathered, then the stone removed, then all the flocks could be watered. Jacob gets one look at this Rachel, Okay, and he gets all excited and giddy. He removes the stone by himself and then waters these sheep of Laban, which Rachel is monitoring and taking care of, right? Now, the Targums, they make this sound more like Superman than the actual, uh, what we read in the book of Genesis. If you read the Targums, it says, quote, And it was when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went nigh and rolled the stone with one of his arms from the mouth of the well. And the well uprose, and the waters ascended to the top of it. And he watered the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, and it uprose for twenty years, unquote. 
Look at that. Jacob is so excited, he moves the stone with one arm, and the water just rises up to the top, and it stays at the top and overflows for 20 years. That's prosperous. Thanks, Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving the blessing to Jacob, right? In verse 11, we read, Jacob kisses Rachel like a brother, but kisses out of excitement, and told her that he was her kinsman. And Rachel, she runs off and tells her father of what happened. This is another striking similarity to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, who ran and told her village of all that Jesus said you know, to her and did, right? It seems very symbolic, at least to me, of the Messianic wedding feast of the Lamb, where in the end, in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we see the ingathering of the entire flock of God, where the well of living water, as in John chapter 410, is opened up and all are watered with this living water and who will never thirst again. And inside of them is a spring welling up, not just for 20 years, but for all eternity. First the ingathering, then the marriage, then eternity with the groom, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, So I just see the beautiful typological uh, activity going on in this passage of Jacob that leads us to the fulfillment in Christ Jesus. In verse 15, Jacob stays for a month until Laban asks what his wages will be. You know, Laban was, again, having hard times economically. And since Jacob showed up, you know, that well, you know, all the way to the top for 20 years, it seems things are looking up. Things are starting to look pretty good. We don't want this Jacob leaving anytime soon. So listen, Jacob, what do you want? You know, you're my kinsman. I'm going to take care of you. You shouldn't work for free. What will your wages be? You know, Jacob, he doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't hesitate. He knows exactly what he wants. He wants Rachel. In Genesis 29, verses 16 through 20, we read, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful and lovely. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Unquote. In verse 21, Jacob faithfully serves Laban for seven years. Now that's a liturgical number. That's a, a number signifying covenant. You know, creation was uh, brought about in six days and then culminating on the seventh day, which was the Sabbath. The very Hebrew word for covenant literally means to seven oneself. So he was creating a covenant relationship with Laban, okay? And the exchange of persons was going to culminate also in a wedding feast, like on the Sabbath between Adam and Eve, here with Jacob and Rachel, a prototype or, you know, a type of Adam and Eve, right? So Jacob asks, he serves the seven years, then he asks for Rachel in uh, for marriage. He asks Laban for Rachel in marriage, rather. And the Laban brings a, about this wedding feast. He gathers all the people and holds this big feast. So we see that in gathering. And then there's this wedding, right? And the bride who's veiled during this process, during the wedding, she is brought into the tent of the apocalypse. Now, this is part of a, a Jewish wedding ceremony, you know, or, or actually ancient Near Eastern wedding ceremonies where they, they had the feast for seven days for the, for the entire wedding process. But there was this tent, 
It's called the Tent of the Unveiling, where the, the groom and the bride would be brought in and they would consummate their marriage. And there she would be unveiled and their marriage would encounter that one flesh union. That's the, the you don't pass go, don't collect $200. That's the line of demarcation. Once you've consummated the marriage, it's done. It's set in stone, right? This is the one flesh union, the intimate relationship that only a married man and woman can enjoy. Okay, this is what happens. They have the feast on that first night. And then the woman, the, the bride is veiled and she's brought into the tent. And there Jacob consummates the marriage, but he doesn't unveil her yet. It waits till the very next morning when he realizes that that woman was not Rachel. No, it was Leah. That's not the woman he wanted to marry, but it was too late. He had already consummated the marriage. He had gone too far. He is now married to her, whether he likes it or not. Now, I hope you can see the, the typology that's going on here. Okay, this is what we see in the book of Revelation, which is takes its name uh, according to this marriage, right? Because ultimately, the book of Revelation consummates, or it comes to its fulfillment, its climax, in the wedding feast of the Lamb, there where the unveiling occurs, right? Well, we see that here, but this is also a, a prototype to what? To the Eucharist that we encounter at the Mass, that one flesh union when our Lord, who is veiled there under the guise of bread and wine, but truly is unveiled as his body and his blood, which we receive, the exchange of persons we take on our tongue, our Lord Jesus Christ, in the one flesh union between us and our spouse, Jesus. What a beautiful gift our Lord has given us in salvation history. So we are there where, um, where Jacob realizes that it's Leah and not Rachel. And Scott Hahn says on page 116 of A Father Who Keeps His Promises, quote, After seven years had passed, Jacob asked for his wife. Laban prepared a feast to, to celebrate. But on the wedding night, he slipped his older daughter Leah into the darkened honeymoon tent. Oblivious to the change in personnel, Jacob slept with the wrong woman. According to ancient customs, sexual consummation marked the point of no return in a marriage relationship. Jacob had just been Jacobed by Laban, thereby receiving a dose of his own medicine. Jacob was furious when the light of day revealed his uncle's treachery. I wanted Rachel. What have you done to me? Laban was cool. Well, it's our custom always to marry the oldest daughter first. Work for me another seven years, and you can have Rachel as well. As agreed, Jacob completed the marriage week of seven days with Leah. He then went back to work for Laban for seven more years before he got Rachel. Could you imagine? I mean, wow, he just worked seven years only to be duped. Now, does this not remind you of something we just encountered in this study? A duping, a Jacobing in a tent? Back in chapter 27, when Jacob tricked his father with his mother's help into giving the blessing of the firstborn to him instead of Esau, that happened in a tent. And here also, in a tent, Jacob is tricked by his father-in-law in marrying Leah instead of Rachel. J Jacob must now work seven more years to, in order to win and marry Rachel, his true love, which will have drastic effects on their relationships. The the the. I don't know, the baggage that we bring in to our relationships. Now, Jacob is an unwitting practitioner in polygamy. 
He's now married to two wives. He didn't set out to marry two wives, but now he is because he loves Rachel so much that he has allowed himself to go down this road and he's been Jacobed now, okay? He's met his match, if you will. That polygamy runs into much trouble and we're going to get into that next time. But um, I want to read Genesis chapter 29, verses 28 through 30. Quote, Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to wife. Laban gave his maid Billah to his daughter Rachel to be her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So those relationships are only going to get worse as it becomes a competition. Who's going to have more sons? And, oh, I can't bear. So here, now have my servant, have my maid servant. Oh, it gets very dicey. It becomes like a soap opera. You know, it's it's almost too much to read sometimes. These are the people of God. These are the ones who will bring about the Messiah, who will ingather all the people. Truly, this this is it. We can't do any better. But really... God makes straight with crooked lines, right? God brings out good things from evil acts and from disordered relationships. God can still work his his process of salvation history. And that becomes more true than ever here in the story of Jacob. But in the Targums, which are very interesting because they bring out that Laban really conspired to keep Jacob where he was. That Laban didn't want Jacob leaving because of all the prosperity that he was uh, encountering due to the blessing God had placed on Jacob. And so he conspired with others to keep Jacob there. And Rachel, she knew that her father was very cunning, and she warned Jacob not to stay, not to go down this road. But Jacob thought that he would never find his match, and he would go down this road anyway. Now, ultimately, Jacob does you know, prevail, because this becomes evident when Jacob will wrestle with this mysterious man in the middle of the night, when Jacob is told that he has striven with both God and man and has prevailed. And we'll read about that in Genesis chapter 32, verse 28. But so Jacob finds his match for at least the time being. But ultimately, in the next episode, we'll see how he tries to wiggle his way out from underneath the grips of Laban. And he actually comes out ahead and has to head home and face his brother Esau. Now, don't forget to stop by CatholicHack.com for the show notes, the links, and more on today's show. And look for the episode that's entitled Jacob Meets His Match. All right? Well, until next time, I'm praying for you, and I ask that you always pray for me. May God richly bless you. God bless. From the Catholic Underground. Based on digital.